people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Please join me in a moment of prayer. Our gracious God, merciful and loving Father, we pray now that as we uh, prepare to uh, look at your word, to walk through these four so important verses that are just packed with practical uh, application, deep theological truths. Lord, we pray that we would not be like the Corinthians, only able to take in the milk, but that by your Holy Spirit, you would squash our pride that you would grant us humility and that you would enable us to receive your word and to receive the deep truths of scripture regarding you and your son, the nature of the church. And that in the end, Lord God, we would all grow to mature manhood in one body, that we would all be unified in heart and mind and spirit, and thus we as a church would bring you great glory and honor and praise. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. During the uh, time of the Protestant Reformation, which would be really the late 1400s, into uh, all the way through uh, the 1500s, probably into the early 1600s, uh, would be the, uh, the, the, the Protestant Reformation. But uh, historically, um, we, we mark the beginning of that with Luther nailing his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, which takes place on, as many of you know, October uh, 31st, 1517. But when that Reformation took place, when that whole movement took place, the Reformers, who had broken away from the Catholic Church, began to wrestle through various theological doctrines, various theological issues. Not just, uh, I know many of us, if you're familiar with history, we, we think of the Reformation and we tend to think about the doctrine of justification by faith alone and that that was really what the battle was, was all about, and that was the, the core of it. Um, but the reality is, 
Uh, when they broke away from the church, you've got to realize that for the better part of a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church was the only true church in existence. Not that, and when I say that, I, I am speaking from the perspective of the visible church, that in terms of the visible church, a church to go to, a church to be a part of, a denomination to be a part of, there was only the Catholic church, right? Because if we talk about the invisible church, well, there's always been one true church. There will always be one true church. But when we are talking about the visible church, for the better part of a thousand years, the Roman Catholic Church was it. It's one of the reasons the Catholic Church taught then and continues to teach today that there is no salvation outside the church. And what they mean by the church, they mean the Roman Catholic Church. Because they understand themselves to be the one true church. To be outside of the Roman Catholic Church is to be outside of covenant communion with God. So when the reformers broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, they had to wrestle with various doctrines such as, yes, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. In other words, how is it that sinful individuals are made righteous in the eyes of a holy and just God? How does that happen? The Catholic Church had their understanding and the reformers had theirs. But to even broaden that, the argument became, what is, the, what is the nature of the gospel? They had to wrestle with that. What is the gospel? In other words, what did Christ accomplish in his death on the cross? What was the atonement all about? Did he simply get the ball rolling, or does he absolutely satisfy the wrath of God? They had to wrestle with the issue of authority. Where does authority come from? Where does authority reside church said, resides with the traditions and with scripture, the Pope and his understanding of scripture. Of course, the reformers said, no, it is scripture alone. But they had to wrestle with that. They had to wrestle with issues of church polity. How should the church be structured? Should there be one person at the top who oversees everything and everybody kind of, and should that one person be in direct line of the original apostles going all the way back to Peter himself, because that's what the Pope claimed. The reformers, of course, disagreed. They had to wrestle with the issue of the sacraments. If the sacraments don't earn righteousness for us, if we are not actually re-sacrificing Christ on the altar every Sunday, well, then what is the Lord's Supper? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? What is the meaning behind the sacrament? They had to wrestle with the issues of indulgences. Do we do indulgences? Is that biblical? If not, why not? They had to, issue it. They had to wrestle with issues of the marriage of the clergy. Can priests get married? And even beyond that, should there be just one priest? Aren't we all priests? Doesn't Peter talk about the priesthood of the believers? And if we're all priests, then can anybody get married? And if we can get married, can the guy who does the ministering in church get married? There, were all, there was a host of issues. When we talk about the Reformation, it is far more than just the doctrine of justification by faith alone. There was all kinds of things that needed to be reexamined in light of Scripture. 
And one of those that they had to re-examine and wrestle with was the question of what is the church? What is a church? Because, again, the Catholic Church said that we are the one true church. There is no salvation outside the church. But now you've got all of these reformers who are breaking away. They're starting their own churches. They are meeting in their own meeting houses. They are starting their own denominations. And the question that they obviously had to wrestle with, are we a church? What is a church? I had a conversation with somebody just this past weekend who uh, in, in, uh, invited my family over to their home for a meal and, and shared with me that uh, they were visiting a church once, and I won't share the name of the church because it doesn't matter, but they were visiting with a church. And their first Sunday there, the, uh, the pastor's wife that they were speaking to at the time, they didn't know it was the pastor's wife, and they said, uh, we're looking for a church. And she said, well, you know, we're all still trying to figure out what church is, and so let's do that together. I'm sure she thought that sounded quite profound. The trouble is the reformers figured out what a church is 500 years ago. That should not be a question mark in anyone's mind today. What is a church? Because they had to wrestle with, are three guys meeting out in the woods, reading and the Bible together, studying the Bible together, praying together? Is that a church? Are they doing church? Today we could say, if Christians gather together at Starbucks and they pray together and read the Bible and study the Bible together, is that church? Are they doing church? The Reformers would say no. In fact, the Reformers identified what they believed to be three marks of a true church, and primarily this is, comes from John Calvin. John Calvin and the other Reformers ended up agreeing with him that to be a true church, there must be at least three elements. One, you must have the pure preaching of the gospel. To be a church, there must be the pure preaching of the gospel. That means understanding justification correctly. It means understanding the deity of Christ correctly. It means understanding the atonement correctly. Understanding the resurrection correctly. Secondly, there must be the proper use of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, for there to be a true church. And thirdly, there must exist church discipline. Where there is no church discipline or the proper use of the sacraments or the pure preaching of the gospel, then there is no church. But what's interesting about these marks is that they're all external marks. Right? These are all things that we can do externally, right? We preach the word. We preach the gospel. We administer the sacraments correctly, right? We get the elements ready. We take them appropriately. We baptize appropriately and in a biblical manner. We exercise church discipline. We hold one another accountable, But what's interesting is that in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, Paul will argue that a mark of a true church that is comprised of true believers, and probably not the mark, there are probably others, but he's going to argue in this passage that one significant 
mark of a true biblical church comprised of true believers is not something that is done externally or that appears externally, but something that is more internal, and that is unity. Unity. Paul will argue that in the church in Corinth, and sadly in many churches today, this is the missing mark, that unity does not exist in many churches. Because when a church is not unified, when they are truly not unified in heart and in mind and in spirit and in love for one another and in their desire to live primarily for the glory of Christ, when a church is not unified, it raises the question, are they even saved? That's what Paul is actually going to say. These aren't just my words. This isn't my opinion. This is actually the argument that Paul is going to level against the church in Corinth. Are they even saved? Because remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. The peacemakers, those who seek to bring about unity and harmony will be called children of God, which implies what? Those who are the opposite, those who are divisive, those who create division within the church, those who create division within relationships, those who create divisions within families, a church that is divided for various reasons raises the question, is that person even a child of God? Are they even saved? Because you see, people who live out the two great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that kind of a person is the kind of person that will not be divisive, but will naturally seek to be unifying and bring about harmony. And so Paul will say to the church in Corinth in verse 1, But I, brothers, from the Greek, brothers and sisters, could be brethren as the old King James words it. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Don't miss what Paul is saying right here in verse 1, because he has already defined what a spiritual person is in verses 15 and 16, right? He has already defined what a natural person is, contrasting the natural person with the spiritual person, right? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's the unbeliever, is what Paul says. That's the natural person. Then in verse 15, he contrasts that with the believer. The spiritual person, however, judges or Uh, ascertains or examines all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. That is, only the believer, because of the Holy Spirit and because they possess a biblical worldview, is the only one who stands in the position to rightly judge the world. The world stands in no position to judge the church. Why? It's because... The spiritual person, he says at the end of verse 16, has the mind of Christ. 
And then he says in verse 1, but I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people. I can't even talk to you as if you are saved, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, he's not saying, to be sure, he's not saying that he thinks that they are definitely not saved. What he is saying is that there's a pretty big question mark in his mind. Because this is, this is the harshest, so far, this is the harshest criticism that Paul levels against the church in Corinth. There will be others as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians. But right off the bat, in verse 1, he is saying, I'm not sure if you are actually saved. He softens his criticism by as, adding that last clause, as infants in Christ. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, why do I say that Paul is coming short of saying that they're truly not saved, but that there is a big question mark in his mind? Well, because he's not using the same word that he uses for natural in verse 14. When he says the natural person, remember last week we talked about that. It's the word sukikos, and we looked at other verses that pointed out that that word definitely means lost, unsaved, being aligned with the demonic world. But Paul doesn't use that same word here. Instead, he uses the Greek word sarkinos. He uses the Greek word sarkinos. This is a word that is used only 11 times in the New Testament, so it's quite easy to go through and find them all and figure out what Paul means by this. But most often, this word refers to the physical or material aspects of this world or the influences of this world. I'll give you two examples. Paul himself, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity over and against not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. So when he says earthly wisdom, that is the same Greek word that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. It's the Greek word sarkinos. And so it's earthly wisdom. It's the wisdom of this world. It's the wisdom that has been influenced by this world. Another place Paul will use that word that helps us to understand what he means when he says to the church in Corinth, I can't address you as spiritual persons, but people of the flesh. Romans chapter 7, verse 14, Paul says this, for we know that the law is spiritual. Same word, by the way, that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. There's the same word as well, sarkinos. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Paul says, I am of the flesh. He's clearly not referring to himself as an unbeliever. He's not saying I'm lost. 
But if you go through and you read the rest of what Paul is saying in this context, he's saying, I continue to struggle, however, with the sin nature, with my sin nature, with the old man. He dies hard. So there's this wrestling that is going on. Thus, Paul is communicating to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is communicating to them simply this, that if you are saved, church in Corinth, if you all are truly believers, you are at best spiritual infants. You are Christian neonates. And at worst, you're not even saved. You're not even saved by the way that you are behaving, all of the divisiveness that is taking place within the church. Paul says, I'm not even sure if you're saved because of the way in which they are behaving. There's a question mark in the mind of Paul. So thus far, as I said, this is, this is a really sharp criticism that Paul levels at them. And it will get worse. He will have... He will use even more harsher tones with them as we go through this book. In fact, it gets worse in the very next two verses. Look at what Paul says in verses 2 and 3. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Now, first of all, what does he mean by milk and solid food? I mean, most of us assume that by milk, he's talking about basic Christian truth, right? Christianity 101. And by solid food, he's talking about deep theology, right? You can't handle the heavy stuff, right? You can't handle the truth. He's doing his whole. I can't even remember the name of that actor. I can picture his face, but it doesn't matter to me. But we never want to assume the meaning of words, right? That's a good rule to remember. Um, We never want to read into the words of Scripture the meanings that we want to be there or the meanings that we think should be there, right? It's a good rule to live by. When you're talking to someone and they're arguing from Scripture about some point and they're saying, this is what this means question you should always respond with is, how do you know that that is what that means? And secondly, where in Scripture are you getting that meaning from? Because Scripture should interpret itself, right? Where are you getting that meaning from? I try to live by that, and I try to preach by that. So let's not just assume that milk and solid food is a reference to Christianity 101 and deep theological truths. I think we can get the meaning from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and then we'll read down to chapter 6, verse 2. The author of Hebrews says this, but this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You ought to be teaching the Bible at this point. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So there it is. 
right? You need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. They don't handle the Bible properly. They practice eisegesis as opposed to exegesis, reading into Scripture what they want to be there rather than reading out of Scripture what is actually there. They are unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Which, by the way, this is why you need to be reading your Bibles every day. And this is why you should be studying the Bible on your own as well. Because we become mature Christians by engaging in constant training and practice to distinguish good from evil. But then he says in verse 1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Let's leave the elementary things of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again, so here's what the elementary doctrines of Christ are. Here is what the, uh, the, 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 the elementary principles are that he uh, talks about, the basic principles of the oracles of God. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, and the lying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. So the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the elementary doctrines of Christ, according to the author of Hebrews, minimally is our understanding the biblical doctrines regarding repentance and faith and washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. And that makes sense, right? Faith and repentance, those are pretty basic. If you're going to be a Christian, you've got to understand what that means. What does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to have faith in Christ? What does it mean to repent, right? That, these, this is Christianity 101 that every believer ought to understand. And so Paul says to them, I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you are not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Thus, Paul tells the church in Corinth, he reminds them that he fed them with milk on his first arrival, which makes sense. Shared the gospel, now they're saved, let's do some discipleship, I'll give you Christianity 101. And then he reminds them, apparently, that in his first letter, because we know that 1 Corinthians is not the first one he wrote, according to chapter 5, verse 9, he wrote a letter prior to this that no longer exists. Um, according to the divine wisdom and sovereignty of God, we no longer have that letter. But he fed them with milk. And now he is shocked that some three and a half years later, he spent three and a half years with them, by the way. He stayed with them for three and a half years. He wrote a prior letter to them, and yet they are not able at this point to handle the deeper truths of God. They still need milk. In fact, we know from church history that that doesn't get much better after Paul's death. 
approximately 30 years after the death of Paul, we know that an early church father by the name of Clement of Alexandria actually wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and we have that letter. 30 years after the death of Paul, he writes this letter to the church in Corinth that is still in existence, amazingly, and they still have all kinds of problems, one of which is they apparently are revolting against their elders. They're being not willing to submit to their church leadership. And so Clement writes this, and I quote, It is disgraceful, brethren, very disgraceful and unworthy of Christian conduct that of the stable and ancient church of the Corinthians, thanks to one or two persons, it should be reported that it revolts against its elders, close quote. Apparently, they were really hard-headed. And even now, Paul says, not only then, but 30 years after Paul, apparently they still need just the milk. And they cannot handle the deeper truths of Scripture. Paul says, look, I can't even go on to deeper theology with you because you still can't figure out Christianity 101, which is repentance from dead works and faith in Christ. Right? Because when you think of those two things alone, most of their problems would be resolved if they simply practice repentance. Right? Stop living life your way. Stop living by your own selfish desires. Strive to keep the two great commandments, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, if they would just do that, they'd probably be a whole lot better off, wouldn't they? This is basic Christianity. And Paul says, I can't, I can't give you anything other than milk because you can't handle anything more than milk. Now, don't miss, don't miss the weightiness of this rebuke because to a church like Corinth that was comprised of Greeks and Romans, who thought they were the smartest, wisest, most successful people in the world. They were far superior than the barbarians that live out there, right? We've, we've, we've got Socrates and Plato, and oh, yes, we've got Jesus and Paul and Apollos as well. You know, they're helpful. And Paul is saying to them, you guys think you're so smart, and you think you're so mature, and you think you're so better than everybody else, but you're really just a bunch of babies. They got, I got to keep giving milk to. You know, it actually brought to mind, probably sharing too much of myself than I should, but anyway, it's a good illustration. It actually brought to mind the uh, scene in um, Night at the Museum. When the main character is, uh, finally has, uh, has, has finally won the battle of the wits with this, this little capuchin monkey named Dexter. And, uh, and he finally pulls one over on him, and he starts basically tongue-lashing this little monkey, which is funny in itself. It's like you're yelling at a monkey, really. But he's yelling at this monkey, and he says, you know, you think you're so smart. You think you're so big. You're so bad. But you're just a little baby, Dexter. You're just a baby, Dexter. Maybe later I'll come around. I'll change your little baby diaper. Just baby Dexter, that's all you are. He's so proud of himself. He finally, 
He finally outsmarted the monkey. You know, in a sense, this is what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. You guys are just babies. I still got to give you milk. Maybe on my way back to Jerusalem, I'll stop in Corinth. I'll change your little baby diapers. <laughs> Could you just act like babies? I can tell you that the people in Corinth, when they got to this point, some of them probably would have wanted to throw this letter out the window. Right? Who is he talking about? You. Acting like infants. And so he has to treat them like babies and give them baby milk because, as he says at the beginning of verse 3, you are still of the flesh. Same word, by the way, that he uses in verse 1. So again, he's not saying they're not saved. He is saying, I really can't tell at this point. You are either infants in Christ, spiritual neonates, or you're not even saved in light of the way that you are behaving. They are still acting like unbelievers. And maybe they even are unbelievers. The irony is that their inability, their inability to see their own spiritual immaturity is the evidence of their spiritual immaturity. You see, because a spiritual mature person recognizes their sins. They know what their sins are. They're painfully aware of them. And when someone points them out to them, when someone comes to them in love and says, you know, brother or sister, I saw this sinful character in you, and I just, I just want to point it out to you. The spiritual person is not offended. And the reason they're not offended is because I'm already aware of it. I, I already know that that sin is there. And obviously, you pointing it out to me just means I need to keep working on it because I'm not doing a very good job of killing it. The spiritually mature person is offended. What do you mean you see pride in me? I don't have any pride. Who's prideful? Well, I don't know. Maybe you. They're offended because they don't see it. And they don't see it because they are spiritually immature. And so you can't point it out to them. That's the irony of the church in Corinth. And so Paul says... I'm not sure you're even saved because you're missing a critical mark of a true biblical church, unity. But I don't want to put words into Paul's mouth. Why does Paul say this? Why does Paul level such harsh criticism against the church in Corinth, right? You know, they're wondering this. How can you say this, Paul? How can you say that we're infants? How can you say that all we can handle is milk? Give me, give me that letter. Let's burn it. Because, you know, they would read these letters publicly. Right? It was probably one letter, probably read to the church on a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. The Apostle Paul wrote us a letter. Everybody says, yay. By the time they get to here, they're going, boo. 
Why would Paul say this? Middle of verse 3. For, explanatory, so when you see the word for in the New Testament in particular, it's usually telling you why the person just said what he said. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way, aren't you simply behaving like the rest of the world? Aren't you behaving like unbelievers while there is jealousy and strife among you? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Acting like the rest of the unbelieving world? Paul obviously intends this as a rhetorical question. The answer must be yes. It is interesting that Paul only mentions himself and Apollos. Remember, back in 112, there seemed to be two, four groups. What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Yet here in verse 4, he only mentions himself and Apollos. So the question is, why does he leave out Cephas and Christ? I think it's simply, well, one, Paul doesn't really mind if people follow Christ, right? <laughs> that's what they should be doing. So whoever it is that's following Christ, they're, they're the holy remnant in that church, 20, the 25 percenters. Um, but Paul and Apollos are the ones who planted the church. They're the ones who are most familiar with them. And so he recognizes that they are probably the ones that more people are gravitating towards. I follow Paul. This is the way of the world, though, that we align ourselves with our idols, our heroes, our sports teams, whatever it is, right? And, uh, and yes, we do that with sports, and people do that with Hollywood. This is my favorite actor, and then it comes out that he's committed all kinds of horrible sins, and he's divorced his wife or whatever else, and they're shocked for a little while, but okay, I still love him as an actor. Right? They just, they'll overlook that kind of stuff, right? Or you can have your diehard sports fan that roots for a team that has never won a game in the entire history of the league, and you wonder why are you rooting for them. But the problem is Christians will oftentimes do that with their theological or pastoral celebrities. And Paul says, don't do that. It is a sign of spiritual immaturity. But then he says that jealousy and strife and disunity is the evidence of their spiritual immaturity. And it is possibly the evidence of their lack of salvation. Why does he say that? Lack of salvation? Why does he seem to be implying that? Well, because remember, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, there when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, but before talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about the evidence of the works of the flesh, the evidence of those who are lost. And he says in Galatians 5, 19 and 20, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. That's the works of the unbelieving world. That's how the unbelieving world lives. They're constantly going at it constantly causing division, constantly stirring up drama. James will say something similar. James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, listen to what James says. But if you have bitter jealousy 
and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Demonic. Division and disunity within the church. Disunity is a mark of spiritual immaturity and possibly of not even being saved. In other words, understand, my friends, spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity has nothing to do with knowledge. doesn't matter how much you know about the Bible. It doesn't matter how much theology you've read. It doesn't matter how many theological books you've read. It doesn't matter how many systematic theologies you've read. It doesn't matter how many years you have spent in seminary or if you have a an M, an MDiv, or a THM, or a PhD from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, it does not matter. That is not the mark of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not based on your position within the church, albeit a Bible study leader, a Sunday school teacher, a deacon, an elder, a pastor. That does not that is not the mark of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not defined by how long you've been a Christian. Got saved when I was 10. I've been walking with the Lord for 60 years. You could still be a spiritual infant. Spiritual maturity is not defined by any of these things. Rather, spiritual maturity is defined and the evidence of spiritual maturity is the extent by which your character has been transformed into the character of Christ. And that can happen with someone who's been a Christian for three years, or sometimes someone who's been a Christian for 30 years, someone who's only read the Bible and someone who's read all kinds of theology. And this is because... That person has, as Paul says, at the end of verse 16 in chapter 2, the mind of Christ. To be a spiritually mature person is to have the mind of Christ. To think as Christ thought. To view other people as Christ viewed other people. To view the church as Christ viewed the church to love as Christ loved, to serve as Christ served, to sacrifice as Christ sacrificed. To live solely, primarily for the glory of God is to have the mind of Christ. And so Paul's point is that spiritual maturity is not about knowledge. This is what he wants the church in Corinth to understand. And this is what we need to understand. Spiritual maturity is not about knowledge or age or position, but about being like Christ. And you see, spiritual maturity leads to unity. Unity is often the missing mark in many churches because they are spiritually immature. A church that is spiritually mature is a church that will possess and display Unity. A believer who is spiritually mature 
is someone who will strive to be unifying and not divisive. It's the missing mark in many churches. It's the missing mark in the life of many professing Christians. Let's pray.